So the last 18 months has been quite difficult in the mortgage market with interest rates going up from their historic lows and lots of turmoil, some of it caused by government changes, some of it by political events and world events. So I thought it'd be really useful on today's podcast to go through a mortgage bonanza, everything that you need to know about mortgage markets now, some questions like should you get a fix, should you get a tracker and lots of other questions that we get asked all the time. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. I'm delighted to welcome two experts to the podcast for their podcast, what I believe is your podcast debut, Andrew and Michael from Benison Brown Mortgages. Thank you very much, Tommy. Yes, as you say, it's our debut, so be gentle with us, won't you? It's all good. Don't think about how many people are listening is what I do now, because when we started, we had like hardly any listeners, but we've got quite a few now, but I won't mention the number. So <laughs> let's just get, I mean, why are you guys expert in this? Give us your credentials. Yeah, for myself. So I'm the general manager of Benison Brown. So I look after the team, make sure that we're delivering the service standards that we need to and make sure everyone's updated on the market and can have good conversations with their clients. My background is finance. I've been in the industry now for 15 years. Most of that time spent with either Barclays or Benison Brown as an advisor. So a wealth of experience in terms of mortgage market and delivering a great service to clients. And myself. So I've been in the mortgage broken world for about six years. So I came to it relatively late in my career. But for the last 20 years, I've been a buy-to-let investor. So we've owned a number of buy-to-let properties. We've done quite a lot of developments. And so I've had a lot of sort of connections, if you like, with the mortgage world. And then six years ago, myself and Michael set up Benison Brown. And on that journey, I've now gone from sort of general manager to now broken. And that's all I do at the moment is speak to customers and help them secure mortgages. Awesome. So I alluded to it in the intro, but been quite a lot of activity and turmoil in the mortgage market over the last sort of year or so. So give us like the outline of what's been happening and where we're at. Yeah, as you say, it's been an interesting year. 2022 was a very interesting year in the mortgage market. Lots of challenges over the year. Up until September, it was looking like an absolutely fantastic year for the industry. There was looked like we'll have to a record year in terms of lending. The general expectation was that base rate was going to rise and it had started rising during the year. It looked like it was going to be quite slow, quite steady, something that everyone was prepared for and needed to happen ultimately for the economy. We can't live forever at 0.1 or 0.25%. And so it all seemed quite sensible early in 2022. And then come September and the mini budget and everything kind of changed almost in a day. The mini budget caused investors to be very concerned about the UK's control of the economy and their control on inflation. And it got everyone very worried about what might happen. And the Bank of England then had to act quite strongly in terms of buying back that confidence in you, if you like. So they made sure that there were strong messages about what might happen with the base rate. And obviously they've acted on those and we're now at a 4.25% base rate. If you go back just over 12 months, we're at 0.1%. So there's been a big change in terms of the Bank of England base rate. That mini budget in September caused a lot of chaos in the market in the last quarter of 2022. There was a lot of uncertainty. So from lenders' perspective, they started to pull products, which was a big problem. And they put their rates up very quickly. 
and quite high compared to where the base rate was at the time. So end of 2022 was a tricky period for people looking to buy properties with a lot of uncertainty. I guess the good news is that 2023 has started to look a lot brighter. It's come with a bit of calm. Rishi obviously came in 2022 and there's a bit of calm in the market now, a bit more certainty about what might happen. And the expectation for the base rate has been revised and it looks like it's not going to go as high as it was first expected. And there's certainly more calm in terms of the market. So lenders are coming back in terms of interest. One thing that we are finding as well at the back end of 2022, after a very good year, a lot of lenders weren't particularly that aggressive with their pricing. They weren't particularly looking for new business because they'd done maybe their lending budget for the year. Obviously, start of a new year, everyone wants to get going again in terms of the mortgage market and the lenders. So we're seeing a lot of aggressive pricing and rates coming down and lenders being a bit more sensible with their decisions. So 2023 is looking like we should hopefully get back to some normality in the mortgage market. Sounds like good news to me. I mean, the question that I'm sure you get asked about 25 times a day, which no one really knows the answer to, but is it a good time to buy? Yeah, that is a very tricky question. In terms of the housing market, I think there's a lot of green shoots in there in terms of recovery from that mini budget and the chaos of the back end of 2022. It looks like the market is coming back to some normality and what was initially expected to be maybe a 20, 15%, 20% drop in value, it looks like that's maybe going to be more like a 5 to 10% drop in house prices. So the good news is that it's not as bad as what we thought it was going to be. In terms of the market itself, it seems to be very resilient in the UK, the housing market. It's a very English thing to own your own home that maybe isn't quite so common across Europe. So you do find the UK housing market is very resilient. I think in terms of buying a house now, if I was buying a home, I wouldn't be too concerned because if I'm buying a home to live in for the next five or 10 years and it's the dream home, then it's the right house to buy and you'd go ahead and bite the bullet and go for it. If you're making an investment, there's bargains to be had out there. There's people that need to sell properties, there are people that need to move. So there's always an opportunity to buy and I think it's about buying something at the right price but I do think the market's very resilient and it's not as doom and gloom as it was so I certainly wouldn't be concerned about buying a property now as long as it's the right property at the right price for what you want. Yeah definitely and that's the thing isn't it buying at the right price easy to say quite hard to do in some in some situations okay so let's just imagine like somebody is thinking about buying a house okay what do they need to do like the key steps before applying for the mortgage and maybe before they even contact you like some tips that they could do themselves maybe before applying. Yeah I mean i Maybe biased, but I do think a good starting point is to speak to a broker very early in the process because the broker can basically educate a client on all the different components that you need to take care of when you make a purchase. Now, obviously, to start with, the key question, which I think most first-time buyers will ask me is, Andrew, how much can I borrow? What can I afford? And understanding that is really the key starting point for your house search. And I think what's more prevalent at the moment is it's not just how much can I borrow, it's what will the monthly payments be? Because what was maybe a thousand pounds a month a year ago could easily be 17, 1800 pounds a month. That's kind of what interest rates have done. They really have risen dramatically. So as a responsible lender, affordability tests will be taken on each client. But just because a lender feels it's affordable, I think ultimately the client's got to decide, you know, am I happy paying X amount per month? Is that actually affordable? Will I still have disposable income to do the other things in life that I want to do, as opposed to just paying essential bills? 
Um, so if it was me, I would do some research, maybe ask friends. Of course, Medics Money can help as well find a broker and the broker will assess their circumstances and give them an idea of what their borrowing capacity is and also educate them on other things they may want to consider, such as, for instance, finding a solicitor, how to potentially bargain with estate agents. And we can educate people because you know, you don't buy a house very often and you can be a little bit green, let's say, where estate agents, they're used to selling lots of houses. And so their role is to essentially try and get the best deal possible for the vendor. Whereas from our side, we're trying to get the best deal possible for our borrower. And we often find we can really help first time buyers with their negotiation strategy as well. Yeah. And I think you mentioned like the benefits of using a broker, but I think we should go a bit more into detail there and just get the distinction between a restricted advisor and a whole of market, because this is something that not a lot of people understand. We think it's really important. Can you just give us a sort of detail on, on, on that in terms of, okay, you said you can find a broker via Medics Money, but let's go into that restricted via versus whole of market. Absolutely. I mean, there's, we sort of break that question down a little bit and, you know, how might I secure a mortgage? Well, one way is you could do it yourself and you could go to your local bank and essentially you would be just sold that bank's products. And that's almost probably the worst thing to do in case, unless you get lucky and that bank happens to be leading rates. Now, you could also look yourself on maybe things like Money Supermarket, and they can give you kind of best buy tables and rates for different mortgages. And again, you could speak to a bank directly. Now, in terms of getting help and support, you can do that with a broker. Now, most brokers nowadays are what we call whole of market. They give you access to, or they have access to every single lender that will deal with a broker, which is pretty much every bank and building society. I won't go into details now, but there are two or three banks and building societies that are what we call direct only. They don't sell via brokers, but all of those banks and building societies do have broker arms as well. So it's kind of two arms to each bank. Now, there are some brokers that are restricted. It's not that often where they may have a panel of maybe 20, not always but it tends to be the brokers that are within estate agents can be but not exclusively so it's really important to speak to a whole market broker in my opinion why would you not want to do that you want to have full access and get the best deal in terms of why you might want to use a broker the broker role is to find you the best deal but it's it's also in my opinion and we've built a business on the back of this is to deliver a great service by making the whole process less stressful for a customer. And I think that's where a broker comes into their own. In my opinion, brokers are not there necessarily to solely find you the best deal. It's about guiding you through the process, providing support and making it less stressful. Because buying a house, if anyone has ever done that, is probably one of the most stressful things. I mean, maybe selling a house and buying a house is even more stressful because you're doing two transactions and it's never smooth. So having a professional that can help you guide you through the process and make things easier is really important. And having a professional that avoids you making a failed application. So for instance, you might think you can apply to TSB and run it to age 75, for instance, when actually they won't allow you to do that. Technically you can, but you'd have to evidence pension income from age 70 to 75. So we find a lot of people, and it can be inexperienced brokers as well, you can make applications that are not going to pass due to criteria failure. So a very good broker will know criteria very well and make sure that when you make an application, it's highly likely to get accepted by that lender. Yeah, I think that's just really wise words. And unsurprisingly, your bank is going to sell you their own products. They're not going to say, actually, a rival bank's got a better deal for you. So I think you should go and see them like, just not how banks work. 
So large portion of our audience are doctors, NHS staff. We do have some non-medical listeners as well. And if you are, hi, thanks for listening. But let's get into specifics for NHS staff in general, because we get loads of questions about locum work or I'm doing bank work. I'm a GP and I've brought into a practice. So give us some specifics for the medical professionals out there. Yeah, certainly. And this is, I guess, picking up on Andrew's point, this is a real key reason why not to just go with your local bank or or potentially a restricted advisor, because every lender will judge your income differently and it can make a huge impact to the amount that you can potentially borrow. So I guess NHS staff in general, one of the key things that some lenders do and some lenders don't do is around the pension contributions. Most NHS staff pay quite a large sum, large percentage into their pension each month. Some lenders will take that into account for affordability. Other lenders will appreciate that it's a pension payment and it could potentially be stopped if it needed to in the future. So they won't take it into an account, which can have a big impact on the amount that can be borrowed. Again, allowing things like overtime and allowances, lenders don't always view that the same way. Some will take 100% of that income, others will maybe cap that at maybe 50%, which could have a big impact on what you could potentially borrow. So a good broker will know those lenders the best to approach. In terms of some of the specifics, you mentioned about GPs buying into a practice. So we do have lenders on panel that we can work with who will look at that straight away. So as soon as you've bought into a practice, they will be willing to have a look at the historic performance of that practice and use that income towards a new application for that new partner. Going back, other lenders would maybe then say, well, we need to see two years of that history of that self-employed. So again, being able to approach the right lender is key. I guess the other big ones are bank work. And so again, most lenders will allow us to use bank work within the application and use that as income. It's about the length of time that you've been doing it for. So as long as you've been doing it for over three months, we've got lenders that will be able to use that bank work and use 100% of it. And then locum work is a little bit longer that they typically want. So most lenders will look for 12 months history. But again, there are lenders that are exceptions to that and will maybe start to use that locum work after around six months or so. So I guess you know, any income we can potentially use. And this is really where the whole of market advice comes in, because it's about knowing which lenders are going to do it and approaching the right lenders with the application. Awesome. Like, absolutely brilliant tips there. And I think this kind of links to something you said earlier, because I want to know about, we get a lot of questions about a credit file, like having a good credit file. But you said Mm -hmm. something interesting earlier. You said, if you use an inexperienced broker, then you're going to put multiple applications in. And the problem with that is because it hurts your credit file. Is that, is my understanding correct there? That's correct. Yeah, it can do. Obviously, everyone's circumstances are different with your credit report. But when you do a credit search with a bank, if it's a hard credit search, so it leaves a footprint on your credit file to say you've done an application, it's marked on your credit report. The next lender that you go to sees that you've done that application. They don't know the outcome of that application because that information isn't shared. It's only shared that an application has been processed. Now, one or two applications, that happens. Maybe the valuation's gone through. But if you suddenly get to three, four, five applications, you go to that fifth lender with a new application and they look at your credit report and say, oh, you've applied at Barclays, HSBC, NatWest and TSB. And now you're coming to us. We're okay with the application, but clearly something's gone wrong previously because you're approaching us at a fifth attempt. So we're maybe missing something let's just be safe and say no, because we don't want to take the risk. And so having those multiple applications, it does impact your credit score, which obviously could potentially impact an application in the future. Yeah. And that's why it's important to use a broker that understands medical professionals, because as you said, like some brokers view bank work in a different way, some brokers view buying into a GP practice. So it's like minimizing the chance of a failed application, which ultimately could impact your credit file. Is that, have I got that correct? Exactly. Yeah. I'm trying to get it right first time and limiting kind of the errors that might be on there and making sure it's 
it goes through first time because as Andrew said it's a stressful process buying a property it's not something that you do a lot in your life so the unknown's always a little bit stressful and you know taking that phone call to say that the application's been declined and you just don't know where to turn to next a good broker can make sure that doesn't happen and have solutions in case something does go wrong yeah okay Apart from not firing in multiple applications with inexperienced brokers that hurt your credit file, any other tips for like sorting out your credit file? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what we should dispel, I'm going to answer your question slightly different, is some of the urban myths, because you often hear you should get a credit card to build up your credit history. And that might be told to someone who's got a 10-year credit history because they've had bank accounts since they're age 16. And I would say that is an urban myth and it's irrelevant. I think what a lender is looking for when they're assessing someone is whether there is anything negative. And so we can't stress how important it is to have a very clear credit file. And your credit file will be reported for six years. And we have many customers that maybe had one late payment on a credit card. To anyone ordinarily that's not stretched for money, has got a good income, it's only one late payment, it shouldn't matter. But actually it can have quite a big impact. And as many high street lenders that would reject an application with just one late payment and potentially two late payments could be rejected by most of the high street. So it's really important for anyone who's got a credit card to set up a direct debit so it's impossible to miss the direct debit because that's the classic that happens. And also utility companies are now fully reporting and lenders, most lenders will look at utilities as well. So you know how sometimes medics are maybe in training, moving from town to town, you could being rented accommodation, it's really important to make sure those bills are paid, set up, you're not late. Because these are the things that can stop you getting a mortgage. It's great that customers have now got much more visibility with Check My File, Credit Karma, there's a money saving expert, there's lots of ways to get your credit file. But that score in many ways is irrelevant. A lender doesn't look at your score, that's another myth. They will take the information and score it themselves. So I think the key is to just not have anything negative. And the only exception is if you're new to the country. We've maybe got a medic that's come from abroad. To build up their credit history, then potentially it does make sense to have a bank account, a credit card, to build that history up over time. Yeah, awesome. Okay, good myths. Busted there. Okay, you alluded to this earlier, but does it vary how much you can borrow between lenders? Yes, is a short answer. And it can be quite dramatically as well. I think we go back to some basic principles. So the, our regulator, both brokers and lenders, is the FCA Prudential Risk Authority. And there will be some rules that lenders cannot breach in terms of income multiples that, that are still applied. And essentially, what a lender will do when they assess an application is stress test. That. And what do I mean by stress test? Well, the interest rate may now be 4%, but it will be stressed at a percentage quite considerably above that. And the lender will then make assumptions on your regular outgoings and assess whether they think you can afford that monthly payment. Now, different lenders will have different risk appetites. And so the affordability can vary quite dramatically from one lender to another. And to give you an example, we could have someone that earns £40,000 per year, and there could be some lenders that would lend 200,000 and there may be some that would lend 150,000 and it can be even more wider ranging depending on whether they have any debts, any children, dependents, they might have car finance, etc. All of these different factors means there's so many variables that every single lender will come up with a different answer. So we're looking now, we've got some quite cool tools where we can put the customer's information in and it will 
spurt out essentially what you can lend from 35 or 40 lenders. And that's quite helpful as a broker to see, you can see the variation. So it's another reason, don't get disheartened if you go to your local bank and can only borrow X, the chances are you will be able to borrow more than that with another lender. Yeah, and as Andrew says, so there's obviously affordability in terms of the stress testing that they're doing. But going kind of back to the point I made earlier about the income that lenders take varies as well how they judge people's overtime, how they judge their bank work, how they judge commission if they're in a commission-based role, for example, can all vary by lender to lender. So whereas one lender might say you earn 50,000, another lender might look at it and go, oh no, we think you earn 60,000 based on the way we'd calculate your income. And obviously those numbers can have a big difference on the final what you're able to borrow number is. Awesome, okay. So I've got a list of basically common questions that podcast listeners ask us all the time and I wondered if we could go through those and that would be super helpful for listeners so I'm a first-time buyer and I don't know where to start like this is a really common thing it can be overwhelming like you said you've never done this before what is the sort of first thing that a first-time buyer should do in your opinion so we sort of touched on this earlier in the podcast that I think is speak to a broker so to find a broker that you trust I think in financial services, over the years, trust has been sort of a major factor. And I think it's really important that you work with somebody that you can trust, that you get on with, that is going to take the time to understand your circumstances. So I think it's really important to find a broker that does a fuller job at assessing your circumstances, i.e. they do a full questionnaire. They understand exactly you know, how much you earn, what debts you've got and then do some research to understand how much you can borrow. It's not okay to give someone the advice you can borrow four, four and a half times after a five minute conversation. You know, we sort of would say that's sort of almost cowboy broken. So I think it's really important to speak to someone that does assess your circumstances so you understand the different dynamics. Um, And then I think the obvious is to start looking for properties in your area and see, you know, have we got a match? Am I able to afford a property that will be suitable for what I want? And, you know, we all want to live in, you know, big six bed detached houses with pools. But the reality is most people can't always afford exactly what their dream property would be. It's to start to understand what compromises you're prepared to make. But the other big one, which is quite prevalent for first time buyers, is the bank of mum or dad. You often find that parents, once a their child has gone to the effort and shown all those positive signs that they do want to get on the property ladder and they've spoken to an expert and they now understand that actually if they had another £20,000 deposit, it could get them a two bed instead of a one bed. We often find that parents are very much you know, in favour of helping the children make one move. You don't want to buy a one bed and two years later sell it and to buy a two bed. So we often find that parents can help and there is other ways I won't go into it now but there's other ways parents can help as well in terms of affordability checks potentially becoming a joint borrower so there's some quite cool things you can do to potentially buy and we often find when someone comes and speaks to us oh wow I didn't realize I could actually afford to buy a property I thought I was a year or two away and we often find that people are not that they're much closer to being able to afford to buy and deposits are still what's fantastic whilst there's been a lot of bad news with interest rates being high the low deposit mortgages are still there so there's government backed mortgages where a five percent deposit is required and this can be on a second-hand property so we're not talking about a government help to buy scheme we're talking about buying potentially a second-hand property with a five percent deposit and the rates are not unrealistic let's say they're not completely miles away from say when you've got a 40 percent deposit i'd say the gap is the shortest it's been 
Whereas during COVID, 95% deals were pulled. 90% were pulled as well at one point. So we haven't, fortunately, we haven't gone back to sort of the COVID times where you need a large deposit. So that's some great news for buyers at the moment. That it is still feasible if you've got the earnings, of course. Yeah, awesome. Okay, next question is, are self-employed applicants treated differently to employed applicants? Yeah, I'm going to take that question again, because this is probably my over expertise, being a self-employed person for probably 15 years myself and run businesses, etc. Now, essentially, there is no difference in terms of products for self-employed or employed. The product is always going to be the same that you're applying for a bank. Where the difference is, is how a lender quantifies your earnings. Now, with a permanent employed individual, it's relatively straightforward. It then gets a bit more complex, which Mike explained with overtime commission, etc. But with self-employed, there are different ways depending on exactly how you're self-employed. So, for instance, if you're a sole trader, pretty much the only way you'll be quantified is the earnings on your tax returns, which are reported each April. And most lenders will take a two-year average. There's some lenders that will take latest years, not many. And there are still some lenders that will do one-year tax returns. So again, a myth, if you think you have to be self-employed for two years, uh, there are lenders out there that will do that after one year. And then there's people who own a limited company. Now, we don't tend to have so many doctors, but we do have a lot of dentists that are self-employed that have limited companies. And the limited company can be used to quantify your income, i.e. the profit your limited company makes, plus maybe any salary that you pay yourself, what's called a director's salary, can be used to quantify your income. We often find there's what we call retained profit. So you don't withdraw all of your earnings out of your company for tax reasons. You may only withdraw, say, £30,000 a year when the company made fifty. So your tax returns are shown 30000 And for a lender that looks at your tax returns, it may look like you can only borrow, say, four times that. Whereas if we've got a lender that looks at limited company accounts, you could potentially borrow considerably more. And this is one of the areas where we find that self-employed people don't always know the best way of quantifying their income. And you can sometimes think you can't proceed when actually you're very proceedable. We just need to look at it in a certain way. So I think the main key to a self-employed person is making sure we're presenting their earnings in the best light possible. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting what you said, basically the same products, but you just got to get your income presented, as you said, in the best way possible, which sometimes can be pretty complicated to do and definitely difficult to do on your own. Yeah. Okay, what about, tell me the difference, I mean, this is a massive question, but in general, the difference between a fixed and a variable rate mortgage. Sure. So let's say we take a mortgage out for 20 years. For instance, most banks or nearly all banks will offer you a sort of promotional period, if you like. So think of it as maybe two years, three years or five years, typically. And we can have even longer promotional periods where you go on what's called a scheme for that initial length of time. Now, you can either choose to fix and a fix does what it says on the tin, really. It fixes a certain rate for a certain period of time, which typically could be two, three, five, seven or ten years, typically. Now... It is possible to have something called a variable rate mortgage, could be known as a tracker, or it could be a discount. Now, those types of mortgages are effectively not fixed. They are variable and can change. They can go up or they can go down. And with a tracker, they track the Bank of England base rate. And we talked about that earlier. That has gone from 0.1% to 4.25%. Anyone that's been on a tracker during that period will not be happy right now because their payments would have continually been going up. Now, 
if the base rate starts to decrease, which maybe it will, possibly in 2024, then you'll start to benefit. So some people will maybe take a gamble of what the base rate's going to do and therefore select a tracker in the hope that rates will come down during their scheme period. Now, there are other options to have a real product is a discount. And you can edit this out later, Tom, if I'm going into more detail, but a discount is discounted from a bank's standard variable rate. So every single bank will have their own standard variable rate and they can offer a discount from it. And it could be, say, three percentage points because standard variable rates are typically around 7 8% at the moment with most lenders. Now, the difference between that is you're reliant on that bank in terms of the level of discount is going to apply to what that bank's standard variable rate is and they set it. And it typically follows the Bank of England base rate, but not always. Whereas a tracker, you know where you are following the Bank of England base rate. So I find a lot of customers that have a higher income can afford to get the gamble wrong. Then a tracker could be a really good product if you believe the base rate is going to start to drop, which I think a lot of people do in maybe 2024 if inflation comes under control. I think there is a belief that the interest rate may come down. We're unsure what it might come down to. It's, I don't think it's possibly going to go back to the 1% levels, but I think it could go down to 2 or 3% at some point in the future. We don't know when. There's a lot of ifs and buts. So I very much see a fixed product very good for first-time buyers. It's good for people on maybe tight incomes where you need to know exactly how much your monthly payments are going to be. And depending on how long you want to fix or go on a tracker for, depends on how long you're going to live in the house to some extent because you don't want to tie into a five-year deal if you're going to move after two years because with all these products, there's usually penalties for leaving the scheme. Although often with trackers, one of the advantages would be you can get products with no early repayment charge. So it's quite hard to probably summarize on the pod, if you like, because this is why I'd say everyone is different and almost everyone I speak to, I may today recommend someone a two-year tracker, a two-year fix, and a five-year fix that all have very different circumstances. So it's really important to kind of think about your own circumstances and understand the pros and cons of those different products and probably talk it through with an expert. Yeah, I think exactly right. Just match it to your own circumstances. Definitely wise advice there. Okay, another question we get all the time is basically, how does a broker like you make money? And how much does it cost me to speak to a broker like you? Yeah, so in terms of how brokers make money, there's a few different income streams, if you like. So the first one is we get paid a commission by the lender. This varies a little bit lender to lender, but certainly doesn't factor into the advice that we give. It's, it's what's right for the client and the commission that we get paid is the commission we get paid. And that doesn't impact on the interest rates that you pay as a client. So whether it comes through us or it goes direct, you wouldn't pay a higher rate through ourselves because of the commission that's being paid. So First stream of income is income from the lender. Most brokers will discuss protection with clients because it's really important. You're taking a big financial commitment. It's really important that you understand what might happen in the event of any illnesses, any injuries, anything that impacts your income in the future. So brokers will talk to you about the protection. Again, if they decide to do a protection policy, there's a commission stream from the insurance. We charge a broker fee ourselves. So a lot of brokers do charge a broker fee to be able to provide the level of service that they provide and the staffing and the requirements that go into that. 
Our broker fee isn't payable until you do an application. So in terms of speaking to somebody, that's not going to cost anything. You can come and have a chat with us, get some advice. And if you decide to use us, our fee then becomes payable. Anything up until that point is completely free of charge. When we submit an application, our broker fee is £100. And then once the application is agreed and the lender's provided the mortgage offer, it's then a fair of £480. Awesome. Okay. I like Medics Money is all about transparency. We love transparency. It's really important to get that out there as well. And hopefully that helps that. Final question from our listeners that we get a lot as well. There's online brokers now, like, and there's brokers like you that you can actually speak to. Mm-hmm. What are the pros and cons of having a broker that you can speak to versus the online brokers? Before I answer that question, a lot of the online brokers, Tommy, are broker fee free as well. And I think it's really important in respect of being transparent. There are fee free brokers out there and they're not always online ones. There could be, we could say large call centers, if you like. So there are fee free brokers out there. You don't have to necessarily pay a fee for advice. Now, I think there's 40,000 brokers out here that give advice to people. So it's really hard to segment everyone exactly. But I think having a broker that you can pick the phone up to, whether it's your local broker or you've got the direct dials of someone who works for a firm, is really valuable because you often find over the course of from first coming to say, look, Andrew, I'd like to buy a property to them getting the keys. There could be maybe 100 interactions with them on different subjects over maybe a period of it could be six to 12 months. So I think having not just the broker, but maybe the company as well that you can get hold of is really important. And I think, you know, I am a big Google advocate. So I tend to and have been, you know, I've had an iPhone for probably 15 years when they first came out. And I always go to Google Maps, whether I'm going out for a takeaway or a hotel. I probably drive my wife crazy because I want to Google it and see what their, their score is. And so we've kind of, with Benison Brand, we've always gone down the route where we've asked our customers to review us on Google and we've gone to quite a big effort of having service as a major part of our proposition. It's our USP, if you like, is delivering a great service. And we've now got over 500 five-star reviews. I think we're one of the top companies in the whole country when you look at Google reviews. So we are passionate about service and quality. And I think that it's not just ourselves. There's many, you know, really good brokers out there. If you Google, you'll find in every major city, there'll be probably 10 brokers that have at least got 100 five-star reviews. So I would say do your research and make your own mind up, whether it's Trustpilot or it's Google. But as I say, I may be biased, but I believe that the outfits that are out there, the brokers that really value service and are good at it, you should be able to find that online that they're good at it. And if it's not there, I would say don't use that broker, you know, unless someone's recommended them. Yeah, definitely. And often the people that recommend, you know, if it's friends or family's recommendation, they might not understand all the nuances that we've talked about today. So they might recommend you someone in good faith, but it could be a restricted advisor that isn't best for you. So yeah, yeah. it's difficult to find good advice, which is why my next money's here. Definitely. Okay, brilliant. That was amazing. We covered a lot of ground there. Where's the best place for people to get hold of you and read your reviews and everything that you mentioned? Sure. If you Google Benison Brown, then you'll find our website. Of course, we're available through Medics Money as well from your website. We're one of the brokers that you could potentially refer to us. They can contact us directly. And yeah, we've got a back office that will answer the phone. So if you prefer to phone, then they can have a chat with someone. We also have brokers that on every day are live, ready to speak to a new client if they want to have a quick initial chat. And then we tend to book in for appointments. And that way it gives the clients a chance to fill in an online financial questionnaire ahead of the meeting. And then the broker can be quite well prepared then to have a really quality conversation, gather the customer's 
circumstances. We tend to try and point out maybe what problems there might be at an initial meeting. We then will go away and do some research. So every customer will get a bespoke recommendation document detailing what we'd recommend for them and their circumstances. And then we have a follow-up call with them afterwards to talk them through it. And all of that is free. We take, I guess it's kind of a calculated gamble that if we invest three to four hours with every customer, we hope that many of those then turn into customers that choose us to submit their mortgage application. Awesome. So much ground covered. That'll be so useful to so many people. Thank you so much for your time. And I reckon we should, we get loads of questions about buy to let and stuff. And you mentioned, Andrew, that you got a bit of background with that. So it could be interesting to do another pod about that because I know that would be popular with our audience. Certainly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We'd love to do that. And buy to lets are very interesting. And especially, you know, do you buy in your own name, limited company, kids, etc. So there'll be lots of medics that do buy to lets and would be very keen to come back and talk about that with you. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks so much for your time today, though. Thank you very much, Tommy. Thank you.